So we're finishing this series on My Strange Addictions. And I don't know if you're in into drama or plays, because I think this book that I'm about to tell you about has been turned into kind of a, a play. I'm not absolutely sure, but there was a book written in 1964 called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. And it was about a, a doctor named Dr. Milton Rokich, and he was working with people who were mentally ill. And he was working with three guys. One, guy, one guy's name was Leon, uh, one guy's name was Clyde, one guy's name was Joseph. All three of these guys suffered from delusions of grandeur, which isn't, isn't really crazy when it comes to studying mental illnesses. But all three of these guys thought that they were Jesus Christ. And so Dr. Rokich's idea, his theory was he could help these guys by putting them in the same room together and letting them have some common experiences where they had to work through reality that all three of them could not be the same person. So they lived together. They ate together. They shared a room. They were roommates. They slept together. They did group therapy together. And he said in, in the book, and one of the reasons why it became uh, such a fascinating study was in group therapy, he would start talking to one of them, and, and, and at some point, identity would come about, and he'd ask, you know, who you are. And one of them would go, well, I am, I am the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. And Dr. Rokich would say, well, how do you know that? And the guy would say, uh, well, God told me. And another guy in the circle would go, no, I didn't. And th- this is true. Not a, I mean, it's serious. And, and chaos, chaos would ensue as they started arguing and bickering. And he said at the end, what he discovered was that, that each of these three guys thought that they were indeed Jesus and that the other two were just mental patients in a mental institution. Now, I mean, it's comedic. I mean, we laugh. It's also at the same time sad because, I mean, it's real people with a mental illness. But here's what's even more tragic than that is they have an excuse. They're mentally ill. But every day, you know someone, and you know someone very well, who wrestles with the idea that they are God. And you see them every day when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror. Now, the foundation of reality is that there is a God and that you and I are not him. And so we've got to make a decision as we go through this journey, as we go through life of of who we're going to worship. Are we going to worship the one true God that's revealed to us in Scripture and through the person of Jesus, or are we going to worship the God of me? Now, it's no coincidence that we're handling the God of me or the God of self last in this series. We handled, and our ministry team made some things to symbolize it. We talked about the God of appearances. We talked about the God of stuff. This week, they brought up these trophies and medals to represent the God of achievement, what what they are discussing in their small groups, what we talked about last week. The truth is that all of these gods and other ones, the God of relationships, the God of sex, the God of, of, of fame, all of those things, all of those gods bow to the God of me the God of self. I mean, that, that's the God that has the power over all the other ones. That's the one that gives them their energy and gives them their drive. And so this week, as we kind of process through this this morning and hopefully through the passage, uh, you'll, you'll look back at this passage of Scripture through the week and, and use your yap to talk to your students and, and have some spiritual discussions about this. As you do this, you'll realize that the sooner that we depose the God of self off of the throne of our life, the sooner and the easier it is to take care of the God of appearance and the God of stuff and the God of achievement and some of these 
other ones that we've been wrestling with. You see, achievement, appearance, stuff, once we identify them, once we, once we begin to see what they look like, which I hope we've done over the course of this week, I hope that, that you've walked in and w- walked in here, heard and walked out going, that may be something I need to pray through. That may be something that I need to uh, take before the throne of God. And go, God, help me get these idols out of my life. Help me take care of these addictions to my appearance and addictions to stuff. God, kill those things. As we're wrestling through those things, prayer is that you're going to help your family wrestle through them and take care of them. Once you've identified them, they're a lot easier to see. But the God of self shows up to tempt in almost every decision we make during a day. I mean, he's never going away. He's going to be there in the, in the subconscious decisions that we make. Am I making this decision? Am I doing this? Am I setting my calendar? Am I making my finances? Am I parenting in such a way? Am I responding to people at work? Or is my work ethic for me, the God of self, or is it for the one true God? And it becomes such a regular routine of these decisions that we make of who we're going to worship that the God of self sneaks into our conscience and, and it's a subtle God that oftentimes we can't even identify like these other ones that we have. And so he may be the most dangerous because he's there all the time. And, and the scary thing is we've been taught that the lies that he tells are okay and normal. Our education systems in college, which trains our teachers that teach in, in, in high school and junior high and elementary school, uh, are, are taught in a worldview and foundation of humanism that tells us that, that the The highest achievement is self-actualization, that humanity has replaced God because the supernatural doesn't exist in a naturalistic worldview. And so the things that we can measure and the things that have the most chance to become godlike is humanity. And we chase after that, and the counseling uh, systems are built towards that, the education. And so everything that we've learned is the highest achievement that I can achieve is my own self-actualization. It's my humanity. It has become God. We've been taught that on a philosophical level since we were in elementary school, through junior high and high school and to college. And so when we have to wrestle with this as a believer, am I going to sacrifice to the God of self? Or am I going to sacrifice to the one true God? It makes it very difficult to identify the lies of the enemy. It's not just that. It's not just education systems. It's in our, it's in our media. In 2011, some researchers wanted to study what, what messages does TV send? And so they got a, a group and they started looking at preteen students, the students that are on the floor right below us that are coming up to us and, or maybe in sixth and seventh grade. And they went back and looked at television programming in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s today. And they went through and started evaluating what messages are being taught. And they had 16 different values that they studied through each of those decades. And what they discovered was in the past, the top three decades were the, the messages taught in the past three decades was the importance of community was number one, that being kind was the second most taught uh, theme, and the third one was the value of tradition. Out of the 16 themes that they studied, the idea of fame finished 13th or lower in every decade except for one. You want to guess which decade that was? The last one. That the media that was geared towards preteen students said that the number one theme that was taught in programming geared to them was you're number one and that you can be famous. 
And with the, with the rise of the internet star and reality TV shows where, where people who are just everyday people have gone on to, to great fame and to great fortune, we have this message not just through our education systems. We have this message delivered to us every time we turn on the television, every time we watch a movie, every time we turn on music that says the God of self is the primary God you should worship. And it's just subtle. We don't think like that, right? I mean... Uh, I'm preparing this message to talk to you this week, and I'm not watching television going, what is the theme that they're trying to teach me? Right? I mean, we don't do that. I don't, I don't even often do that when reading a book to go, is this coming from a humanist worldview or is this coming from a biblical worldview? It just comes in subtly, but it affects the way we make decisions. It affects the way that we live our life. And I want you to understand that, that this is an uphill battle that we're in in the spiritual war to, to kill the God of self so that he doesn't present himself in front of the one true God. So he doesn't become the God that, that we sacrifice for and that we pursue after. Now, here are some symptoms. If you go, well, I don't know if I wrestle with the God of self. I know that selfishness kind of comes in and out. But is it, and, and again, we have a sin nature, so every one of us is going to wrestle with this. But is, is it a God who sunk his claws into you and, 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 and you can't get away? Because once he sinks his claws into you, every decision you make, I mean, is shaped through that worldview of self. Here, here are some warning signs. Now, you'll see yourself in some of these things. It doesn't mean that it's you, but it's something to wrestle through, to think through. Arrogance. If, if arrogance is something that characterizes your life, the God of self may have gotten his claws in you. Because the arrogant person believes that his or her thoughts and his or her way are the only way. So there's no other validity to anybody else's thoughts. And if you're not on board with me, then, then you know, if you're not for me, you're against me. And the arrogant person begins to think in this godlike state that everything that I say and do, like a dictator of my own kingdom, which is my world, and I'm the king of it because I'm God on the throne, what I say goes, and if you disagree or you're not on board with me, then you're the enemy, then you're wrong, and there's no possible way that I could be wrong because, in my mind, I am God. So arrogance. On the flip side of that, one of the warning flags would be insecurity. You wrestle through insecurity and, and, and always concerned with what other people think about you. And if you're always thinking through how this looks and how that looks and how, how people are going to interpret that, that may be a sign that the God of self has gotten his claws into you. Because when everything is about you, and when you have placed yourself on the throne, it matters to you how everybody else sees you. So arrogance, insecurity, another warning sign would be defensiveness. If people come and they make suggestions to you, if they challenge you, if they criticize you, if they go, you know, that's great, but at work maybe they go, hey, you know, if you did this, this could be better, and you put up a wall of defensiveness, or maybe your response is to put up the wall and lob back at them, well, yeah, well, you could have done this or you could have done that. That's a sign that the God of self has taken residence in your heart. Because the subconscious thought is, how dare you question God? How dare you suggest that God himself could have made some sort of error in judgment? So defensiveness is a sign. Fourth one's loneliness. If you have trouble making relationships, because probably what we've talked about earlier, Nobody sees the world the way you see it because they're wrong and you're right and you're isolating. That, that's a sign that the God of self is sitting on his throne. Now, here's 
Here's the scary thing. Most of those warning signs we're not able to see. Most of the times when we're defensive, we don't finish that conversation and walk and sit back down if we've been defensive behind our office or go back into our bedroom after a conversation with our spouse and and think, oh, I think I was just defensive right then. We don't ever have a a conversation with ourselves after we've we've gone out had a, a disagreement with somebody and going, you know what? I think I was very arrogant. So it's hard to determine. But if you're serious about determining if this God of self, you're going, man, that could be me. Or maybe you go, I don't even know, but I don't want that to be me. Here's one thing that you can do. Find somebody that you trust that loves you and let them speak hard truths in your life. And it's not comfortable. But find that person. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it doesn't need to be a spouse. Maybe you go to somebody and go, hey, I want to ask you this. Do I come across arrogant? And I want you to tell me the gut-level truth. Do you find me being defensive on a regular basis? And the things that I do, do you sense insecurity coming up out of my life? Because you're not going to be able to recognize that on your own, but if you can find somebody who loves you and will speak truth into your life, they might identify some of those warning signs, and then you can begin to work in this spiritual battle. Because here is the bottom line. Here's what we're talking about all week with our kids. It's this. You've got to do daily battle with the God of self. You might be able to to do some things that that work through the God of appearances. You might be able to have some some big wins that take the God of stuff and put him on the back burner. You might be able to go, you know what? We're going to set away a portion of our finances or we're going to go through and we're going to we're going to not chase after the newest thing we're going to make be accountable we're not going after the brand new piece of technology when it comes out i'm going to i don't have to have a a a new house i don't have to have this i don't have to have that and so we're going to we're going to kill this as a family right now and everybody's accountable and you begin to see wins in that area of the god of stuff or the god of achievement or whatever but the god of self is a daily battle every day and in every decision You're making a decision to follow Jesus or to follow self. That's just the way he works. And he's the most dangerous of all gods. I want you to go with me to the book of Jeremiah. It's where we're going to look this morning. It's in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 2. And there's a great passage. I'm going to read it to you. And then we're going to come back and look at it kind of in some pieces. But Jeremiah chapter 2, it's about... A little bit over halfway through your Bible, if you open up and you find Psalms, the book of Psalms, and you keep going to the right towards the back, you'll come across Jeremiah. It's a pretty big book right after Isaiah. I hear pages flipping, so I want you to, to be able to get there. Because this might be a passage of Scripture you underline or you star. It is, it is fantastic. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. God says this to the prophet Jeremiah. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods. But my people have changed their glory for, what, for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now we go back to this passage of Scripture, and I love this because you go back to verse 11, and it's God speaking. And as you read this, you, you kind of pick out this, this idea, this, this feeling of God being incredulous. And he go, when he asks this question, he says, has a, has a nation changed its gods? Has there ever been a time, has Egypt, who had their entire 
set of gods that they worshiped? Have they ever come in and went, you know, in the new year, let's get all new ones. We're not going to worship these and we get all those idols out, get all those statues, we're going to get new ones. Has any country done a wholesale change on their gods just, just overnight? And then, and then the response is, and this is great, and he says, even though they're not gods, he says, has, has, has another place ever exchanged all their gods for brand new ones? Because that would be crazy, but it's even more crazy that what we're talking about aren't really real gods. You know, that they're fakes, and even though they were fakes and they don't work, Nobody's ever just changed them out. But be a power, but my people have changed their glory, which is God, for that which does not profit. He says, this is crazy talk. No one's ever done this. But my people have the one true God, the glorious God, and they've set him aside for fake idols. Countries that, that worship false gods, fake gods, they don't even do that. I don't understand it. And then he says in, in verse 12, he says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. The, the idea appalled there is this, this Hebrew word for desolation. If there was a word picture today, I mean, this is what it would look like for us. If you could imagine a television show or, or maybe, maybe a bomb goes off and levels a city. And you find that person in the movie or, or in real life and the, they're walking through the city and it's in ruins and it's totally quiet because everyone's dead. There's nothing there. Nothing survived. It's desolation. And the person standing in the midst of the ruins in utter silence trying to process what has just happened here. That would be the word picture. When God says, be appalled, O heavens. Stand there in shock at what has happened because my people have turned from the one glorious God to chase after false gods, to chase after idols, to chase after strange addictions that don't work. And then he says this, and in the Hebrew, there's some great poetry here that we miss as it translates to English. He says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this be shocked and be utterly desolate. The word shocked is this Hebrew word that gives us this, this idea of fear, this, this picture of your skin crawling. And the word is often used in reference to storms, like a storm's coming and, and you can sense it coming. There's going to be a, a big storm and the hair on the back of your neck stands up. It's that fear, it's that feeling that something bad, something uh, storm-like or tempestuous is coming. And it says, be utterly desolate, which is, the, is another picture. It means to be totally dried up, to be emptied. And we miss the poetry in here because he, he's saying these things, be, be fearful and be desolate. And he gives this picture of great water like a storm and yet desolation where there's nothing left, no water, it's dried up. And it's a parallel to the things he says next in verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And hewed out, this is the second one, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, archaeologists have gone back in this time and, and earlier, and you would find that, that they found over a thousand different cisterns as they've dug. And a cistern was, was a, a, like a pit or a well that was lined with brick and plaster. And, and you're talking about a place in the world where there may not have been a, a lot of running water, and so they built these to collect rainwater. And so the rainwater was there, but it was often that they would break and they would crack and you'd lose the water. And if you didn't, in those days, you also had to, had to deal with the fact that a cistern of water that collected the rain a month ago or several weeks ago had become stagnant and wasn't moving and wasn't good water either. 
And so God gives this picture of how crazy it is that a people would exchange out their gods, and even crazier that my people would take the one glorious God and start worshiping other gods, start chasing after self, and he gives them this picture. He said it's like they've built cisterns to hold broken water. They've built cisterns that keep stagnant water to try to keep themselves alive when there's a fountain of living water right next, by, next door. There's a fountain of living water there. There's a stream with crystal clear water, but you don't drink from it. You've chosen to collect the rainwater that's gone bad, and, and you're dealing with that and calling that life. That's the picture that Jeremiah, through God, gives the people. Imagine if you took your spouse or uh, someone you were dating, and you went out to a, a nice Valentine's was coming up, and you want to do something fantastic. And you got ready, and you, you made plans to go down to Ruth Chris Steakhouse down in Austin. And, and you're going, you're going, this is going to be, this is going to be an expensive meal, but it's going to be fancy. I'm going I'm to make it nice. We're going to get one of those big old steaks. And you go down and you sit down, you're all dressed up, you valet parked, and, and you've got that special someone across the, the table from you. And you order your steak and you look at her, maybe it's, I'm speaking from a guy's perspective, you look at her and, and she's like, I'm good. As the waiter kind of, I'll come back in a second, she reaches into her purse and she pulls out one of those Slim Jims. You know, you know those Slim, you know, snap into a Slim Jim and, and she starts peeling that thing open and she's like, I don't need one of these steaks. I'm just going to eat that Slim Jim. And you sit there appalled at what's happening, that everyone around is looking. Like when she tears the Slim Jim open, you feel like everyone in the restaurant hears that thing and everyone's looking at you and you, why, why in the world would, would you chase after that meat, if that's what it is, that, that fake, when, when you can have this steak, when you can have this, this, this luxurious, glorious experience and meal? And you look at that person and go crazy, and that's the picture that, that Jeremiah is painting, that God is through Jeremiah. Why in the world would you slim Jim it when you could have Ruth Chris? Why in the world would you go to a, a broken down cistern that has stagnant water, that if it's even, if it hasn't leaked out, it's bad for you. When, when living water, when a stream of health and life is there. And the picture that he tells us, if, if we don't do daily battle with the God of self, we become that picture. We become the believer, the person who's following Jesus, who says they're following Jesus, and the living water is there, the daily experience with the Messiah. And we go, nah, I'm just going to do this because what myself offers is good. And I'm going I'm I'm to worship, uh, worship self and, and get all the fruits of that. And God would go, that's crazy. You've exchanged the glorious God for broken cisterns. Now, we're not going to have time in small groups today because... We did breakfast instead, but tomorrow or next week, our students, and, and I'm going to challenge you to do this during this week, go back to John 4. Go and read sometime in your devotional the story of John 4, of Jesus meeting the woman at the well, because Jesus has a conversation with her about being the living water, the well that doesn't run dry, the, weir, the real one true God, not the God of self. Now, if you are, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are um, a disciple or moving in that way, there's, there's some things that you can do. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if, man, you've been playing the church game, I can tell you right now, the only way to kill the God of self is to kill him once and for all and make Jesus Lord. It's the only way. 
I think probably most of, most of you in here, if you're sacrificing your Sunday morning to bring your kids up and to worship, I'm making the assumption that the vast majority of you probably are or have made a decision to be a follower of Jesus. If you're not, I want you to know Jesus is the only way. And I'd love to visit with you. I'd love to talk with you about, about who Jesus is and what he can do in your life and how to, how to begin to trust him and follow him and make him boss. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus and we're in this daily battle, Paul talks about taking off the old self and putting on the new self. We're in the battle of, of getting the God of self off the throne and the one true God, Jesus Christ, on the throne of our heart so that he's making decisions and, and the things that we're doing glorify him. There's some things that you might be able to do that, that could help us along in his journey. And so I'm going to give you a couple of things. This list is not exhaustive. I'm just going to give you two things to wrestle through. But there's some, some tools maybe, some weapons to do battle with. And the first one is this. Serve somebody. Serve somebody. I mean, when you, when you go to serve someone, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm taking myself and all of the things I want off of the throne, and I'm going to put Jesus on the throne, and I'm going to go love somebody. Now, a pastor put on Facebook some time ago this question. David, put it up there for a second. Um, he asked them, hey, what makes it hard to serve others? And here are some, some responses that people put up on his Facebook. Serving is hard when it doesn't fit into my schedule or plan. Like when I want to go for a walk or take a long bath, but my aging parents need me to sort their meds, run an errand, or simply be with them. Yeah, I understand that. What makes it hard to serve others? It's hard when their needs seem endless. I don't want to risk helping serving because I may get sucked in being swallowed up in the serving and not getting to be the me I think I am or should be. I, I feel that. What makes it hard to serve others? There's such limited energy left after a demanding workday, meeting our basic responsibilities, whether with young kids or in the corporate world. How do you balance the needs of rest and self-care with serving others? Or his favorite answer, what makes it hard to serve others? Others. Right? Yeah. All those things are real. All those things are felt. But when you have an experience like this, this is Victoria. This is from a picture from our, our, our junior high and high school summer mission trip we did last year. When you go and, you, and some of our adults and some of our teenagers took a week and they went down and they met this little girl who I believe is five years old and has terminal cancer. Her life isn't going to be with us long. And you go down and you meet that mom who is raising that child, and this girl's dream is to have a frozen room. And you spend a week going through and painting a room, buying rugs, buying frozen bedspreads, buying frozen art, painting all of these things, putting her name up above the pictures. When you invest your week doing something like that, you come back transformed because you spent a week taking self off of the throne and putting Jesus on the throne. Because you know what's not fun? Sleeping in a mission house on a bunk bed. It's not fun being in a room with 14 junior high boys. Do you know what smells happen by <laughs> not even the first night? Like by the time they unpack. It's not fun. I mean, we, we have great cooks that go down. But, I mean, they're not getting, I mean, we're, we're cooking big stuff. And, and for lunch, we're feeding our, our ministry team, our students, and we're feeding 100-plus junior hires at a vacation Bible school. And so you're getting corn dogs, and you're getting chips, and you're getting on Thursday the, the leftover food from the rest of the week because we've got to finish it and eat it up. It's not Ruth's Chris by any means. You know what's not fun? Getting in a van or a shuttle 
and taking a six to seven hour trip in the valley that usually takes like eight or nine. You know what's not fun? Walking around in the South Texas heat in July, hanging door hangers to tell kids about a vacation Bible school. I mean, those, those things aren't fun. Like, like if your kid said, hey, what are we going to do for vacation this summer? And you threw those things out to them, th- their first response would be like, pass. Can I go with you know, my friends? But when you begin to meet the people and God's spirit begins to do a work in you because you have sacrificed yourself and you've pursued Jesus and you go, I'm taking me off of the throne. And Jesus, you and your desires and your heart are going to be at the top of my throne. You come back changed. And I, and I, I, would, I would almost dare you to find a teenager that sat in that home for a week, that worked hard, that, that sacrificed their own money because we bought all the supplies with the money that they gave. You find a teenager that wouldn't look at you and go, it was worth it. And not just for me. I mean, not just that little girl, but for me. Because God changed me because I experienced living, flowing water and not the broken cisterns that I get tricked into drinking from in my regular days. Go serve somebody. We've got some families right now that aren't with us that would be in here. They're Camp Buckner, where we're going with our retreat next week, and they're doing our family mission trip. And they worked yesterday from, I think, 7 or 8 in the morning until 10 at night. It was a long day. They were there Friday for training, and they're there right now. And they were paired up, a, a dad and a son or a mom and a son, dad, and they had a, a special needs child they spent the day with at Camp Buckner to love on, to invest in, to be jesus to them. I guarantee you, I haven't even heard. I'm going to step out in faith and guarantee you, I'm going to come back and go, was it worth it to give up your weekend and pay $200 for a family, 50 bucks a person, $200 for a family, for, was it worth it? They're going to go, absolutely. You know why? Because they experienced living water, not broken cisterns. Serve. Figure out a way. Ongoing ministry. Love your neighbor. Here's the second thing you can do. Make a list of things you're thankful for. It's easy to go, oh, I'll be more thankful. What does that mean? Be, be very specific. Say, I'm going to make a list every day of 20 things that I'm thankful for. And I'm not going to repeat them from day to day. I'm going to look for things that I want to thank God for. I'm going to write them out in my journal. I'm going to, I'm going to list them out somewhere. I'm going to find an accountability partner. And, and, and we're going to trade texts throughout the day. I'll text you something I'm thankful for. When you read it, you text me something back you're thankful for. When I read it, I'll, and we'll, we'll trade back things we're thankful for so that all day long we're taking our eyes off of self and putting them on the things that God has given us. I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for him. And I'm thankful for her. I'm thankful for what God has done. And that every time we're thankful, we strike a death blow to self because it's not about me. Maybe that's something you do as a family. Maybe you sit down, you make it a tradition. As you sit around the table or when you get in the car, when you go to a certain place, we're going we're to take some time as a family just talking about three or four or five different things that we're thankful for so that we're eyes, our eyes are not on self, but they're on God. So the God of self is taken off of his throne to be left with the broken cisterns while we go to the living water. I love baseball. Now, there's rumors that the designated hitter is coming to the National League, and if that happens, I don't know if I love baseball anymore. But I love baseball as it is right now. Don't shake your heads, American League people. That's not real baseball. <laughs> real baseball, pitchers hit. Thank you. That's right. We go down to the valley for a mission trip. We can't do this anymore because it's shut down. We used to take an evening. If students want to go, they could play games or 
they could go to this minor league baseball park. And when you go to this minor league baseball park, it's, it's nothing fancy. They play at, a, at a, one of the universities down there, University of Texas, uh, Edinburgh or McAllen or whatever it is down there, Rio Grande Valley. But they play at their baseball park, and you go in, and I mean, you walk in, and there's like, I'm not kidding when I say this, maybe, maybe 100 people, 100 fans watching. I mean, you, you, you could stand a chance of getting on the field to play if you wanted to. I know one year there were so few people that within five minutes of sitting down, because sit, and we sit down right behind home plate, I look up, and one of our students, literally one of our junior students is on the field. And I'm like, whoa, wait, that's not supposed to happen. And I look over, and another one is, in five minutes, they had already been invited to be bat boys for the game. So I'm taking pictures and videos, sending the family. I mean, it's just, it, it's the experience. I, I walk out one year, and I go over to get some food, and I, and I order, like, two hot dogs, and I hand them my credit card, and they go, we don't take credit card, it's cash only. And I'm like, what kind of world is this? And I go, okay, well, where's the, like, is there, is there an ATM? They go, we don't have an ATM here either. I'm like, what? Like, I went back to, like, 1970. All of a sudden, like, I, I can't even, I'm like, well, cancel those hot dogs. I don't have, I don't even know what to do. I mean, it's just, I mean, there's cash only, no ATM, 100 people. I tell the students, the junior hires all the time, like, when, when we used to go, if you don't get a foul ball, you're not getting on the van back. You know, the foul ball, because you're the only ones here, right? I mean, if you can't get a foul ball, it's because you're not trying. The baseball that you watch, oh, it's sad. I mean, when I say minor league, they're not connected to a major league team. It's just like, it's, it's like church league softball is what, you know, what it is. I mean, they can't catch, they can't hit, they can't pitch. But if you live down there and you, you're seven hours from the Rangers or you're five hours or whatever from the Astros, if you live in the valley, they tell you they don't, you don't leave the valley. It's, kinda, it's a world into itself. That's all you know. But I go and I go, man, this is, this is pretty terrible. You know why I say that? Because I walked into AT&T Park in San Francisco, California with a bay out behind the outfield and garlic fries that are, that are famous for that stadium with manicured grass that the highest paid professionals made with an experience of play and thousands of people around me, the experience is something totally different. It's real baseball. It's pretty impressive. But if you've never experienced it, you don't know what you're missing. And what I want you to wrestle through this week is this. The more time you spend at the cistern, the broken cistern, the less you realize that you're missing something great. The less you're, you realize you're missing living water life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ because you're focused on the God of self who never pays out in the end. Let's pray.